welcome to the Wrestling Heroes and Insiders Podcast, aka The Whip Show. Your co-hosts, Deshaun Whip Dog Whipple and Devastating Daryl Pace, each and every week will bring in some of the top pro wrestlers from around the world. I'm talking WWE, WCW, Impact Wrestling, NWA, and more. So sit back, get your favorite drink, and listen to some great stories told by those amazing and sometimes crazy pro wrestling superstars. Everybody, welcome to another edition of the Wrestling Heroes and Insiders Podcast, aka The Whip Show. It's season two, and we back bigger and stronger than ever. You know what it is. I am Deshaun Whip Dog Whipple, and uh, I got some rose. That's my drink of the night tonight. Just telling y'all ahead of time. And I'm with my tag team partner. Hey, devastating back down pace back in the control room, man. I, I'm back home, man. It's been a bit a bit since I've been able to get in the studio. I know, man. I mean, I love to see you back in the studio. We got a great guest, so we got to do it the totally the right way, man. Man, that's because right, man. We, we, got, we got somebody that's worked all the promotions. Well, exactly. And if we don't do right by him, he might break our legs. You dig what I'm saying? Oh, I can't hear that. The hottest. We got a man, like you said, he's worked all the promotions. ECW, WCW, WWE, you name it, he's worked it. And he's a full-blooded Italian. Can we give it up for Mr. Big Vito? How you doing today, sir? How's everything, guys? Thank you for having me on your show. I heard this is one of the top-rated podcasts in all the world. I said, this is better than Vince Russo's show, so I had to get on this thing. Thank you for having me, guys. I greatly appreciate it. So let the fun begin. Who's got the first question? Let's get in the know. Let's start the show. Let's go. You know what? That was great, and I'm going to pay you for that promo later. You ain't got to worry, bro. Ah, shit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's get right into it, man. So like I said, you've been working for some years, and it's crazy because you look so young. I don't even know. You go back to the 90s. You actually did work with USWA down there in Memphis. Tell me a little bit about that, working under Lawler and them, man. Well, I mean, my journey started as a rookie and I broke into the WWF in 1991. And then I went to Japan and I did Puerto Rico. And then from there, I went to Santa Domingo for Jack Veneno. And then I went, my next stop was uh, USWA with Jerry Lawler. And I tried to get in there. And then back in those times, you know, if you didn't go through Memphis, you didn't get to the WWE. And everybody went through Memphis. I was you know, probably had the best times wrestling in the Memphis Coliseum, learning Southern history. I wrestled in the first Memphis memory show that jam-packed the Memphis Coliseum in 1994, five, I think. And uh, it was a great experience. I mean, I got to learn Southern wrestling, see all the greats, see where Hulk Hogan stole his gimmick from, a man called Austin Idol. You saw a guy named Stagger Lee, who was Coco Beware, You saw where Jimmy Hart started and all the greats, and it was a great learning experience. And let alone, you know, learning about that, but the psychology of learning how to wrestle. I wrestled with the Rock and Roll Express, the Moondogs, the Gilberts, the Lawlers. I was involved in probably the best feud in all of wrestling, the Lawler and the Gilberts. So, I mean, I mean, I did did a lot, and I did a lot of great things, and thank you for the intro, and uh, a lot of hard work and a lot of good times. 
Now, with that being said, what drew you to the business in the first place? Talk uh, about what made you want to even do this, man. Well, believe it or not, guys, I was, uh, I was a Division One basketball player, and I had scholarships to go to Division One Division One schools. I played in Madison Square Garden, and uh, my grades kind of sucked, and I had to wind up going to community community college. So that was like a, a shot out of hell. That was a dose of reality. You know, okay, we're not going straight to the pros. So when I went to the community college, I really didn't dig it. They gave me pass and fail classes. I wound up trying, trying out for the Olympic baseball team. Uh, and then I was like, ah, eh, this ain't for me. So then I was like, ah, oh, may I go back to Staten Island? And that's where I was going to play semi-pro football for the Staten Island Bulldogs. And I was like, yeah, about that. So then I wound up with pro wrestling. I was working in uh, the World Trade Center at the time. I had a real good job. Then I said I could do better than these guys on TV. So I went to a school called Johnny Rod's Unpredictable School of Wrestling in Brooklyn, New York at Gleason's. I went two times and I saw it. I said, okay, I could do this. And then, you know, I began my journey. Nice, nice. Well, as you stated, you actually were in WWF before it, the, going to WCW and all that stuff. Talk right. about when they first brought you in to do some of those dark matches and some of those spot, spot matches and things like that. That was probably looking, you know, back then, everybody had the, the, uh, the thing where they called you a jobber. How could you do TVs and everything, right? They looked at Barry Horowitz. They looked at Brooklyn Brawler. They looked at Dwayne Gill and all the other guys who were on there. But it was the best learning experience you can ever have because those guys never treated me badly. And I was probably one of the only guys, if you look back at the tapes, who had offense against all the major stars. You're talking from Bret Hart to um, the British Bulldog to the Big Boss Man to Legion of Doom, you know, to Typhoon, to Tonka, um, Owen and Coco Beware, High Energy. I mean, I worked in Manhattan centers. I was on live TV. I was doing six-minute matches in my first year. So, I mean, it was the greatest experience. You don't look back. You look back now and say, that was the way to go. But back then, it was such a stigma. And the reason I stopped doing them is because a couple people gave me advice. They said, Vito, if you want to make it in the business, you got to stop doing the TVs or you're going to be Barry Horowitz or the Brooklyn Brawler. So I actually stopped. And, you know, my career, my career probably was, uh, it was a blessing in my career that I did that because it helped get me ready for everything else that I had coming because I was doing TVs. I knew how to do TV already when I went to the stations. So doing Memphis and uh, Santa Domingo and then Puerto Rico, Jap uh, Japanese uh, wrestling, uh, wrestling in Malaysia, you know, leading up to going to ECW, it was a great experience. It was eight years of apprenticeship before I got to ECW. And how did that help with networking, right? Like, did you get some good friends in the business? Like, who did you hang out with in those early days that may have helped you? You know, you know, keep you in the mind when, 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 uh, you know, when you when you made your second turn, you know, through ECW and. and well, I'd uh, be honest with you guys. I really, really was not a clicky guy. I was a man of my own, and I I marched to my own beat, and you know, I wanted to be the best. I trained alone, I ate alone, sleep alone. You know, you've heard that one, but I really did live that kind of lifestyle, and you know, the guys who helped me, it was the honky tonk man, it was the Jimmy Snookers, the George Steels the Bret Hart's of the world who actually guided me and helped me, 
you know, get to Memphis, get to Puerto Rico, Jose Estrada, Johnny Rods, you know, Cousin Luke, Tony Atlas, um, Nikolai Volkov. You talk about all those caliber guys who were on the indies, you know, tagging with the Iron Sheik, um, doing a great, you know, working with Bill Eady one-on-one. I mean, you can't get a better education than that. And, you know, they liked working with me because I was a sponge. I was a hard worker. I never complained. You know, back then you had to be tough, shut your mouth, listen, do what you got to do. So, so a follow-up on that one, right? You started off, started off in the WWE, right? Now, you're at a time, this is 90s, right? It's wild right. time. You're just starting off. What is it like? Like, you're seeing crazy parties. You know, it's a wild lifestyle. Did this, you know, I mean, what was it like starting off kind of at the top? Like, you know, how, how hard was it to adjust to that road life? Well, when you, you guys, you got to remember, if you don't have no training and you don't have anything to go on, what you learn is how you, you know, adapt to the situation. So I learned from the very top on how to carry myself, how to travel, what to do. And I learned from the pros. So you're talking about, you know, Johnny Rods taking me under his wing and taking me everywhere, you know, traveling with a good independent organization and, you know, wrestling all the time and still going to train two and three times a week down at the school. And I want to touch base on that because um, a lot of workers don't know. A lot of fans don't know. Even when you finish, quote, finish, quote, unquote, wrestling school, you're still training all the time. You know, back in my day, I was the indie wrestler, and I had a chance to go down to FCW back in the day, and I saw guys that were on TV still coming down on their off days training. What would you tell the young wrestler about that that thinks, I'm great, they already love me. I don't have to do anything else. You mean the guys who come down and they have T-shirts before they did their first match, those guys? <laughs> gotcha. Guys, let me tell you something. If I could have a dollar or a quarter for every bump practice role I've done, I'd be a gazillionaire. Repetition, practicing your craft, staying with your basics. You know, keep your amateur wrestling skills. You know, I was a basketball player. I learned how to amateur wrestle in pro wrestling. And a lot of guys like uh, guys who were known wrestlers, like a Bobby Lashley or John Morrison, when we used to wrestle up at the WWE, we used to amateur wrestle. They'd be here. He said, Where, where'd you learn how to amateur wrestle? Man, you, you're really hard to take down. I said, I never amateur wrestled. He said, you are full of shit. I said, I swear to God. I said, I learned from, you know, the basics from Johnny Rod School. And it was the guys in the school, like a Larry DeGarris, who never made it big time. But there's a guy who rode me. He said, Vito, he says, you are the biggest horse to ride on. I blow up just riding you and trying to keep me down. And But I learned how to amateur wrestle through pro wrestling. But that took a lot of practice. You just don't learn that. And how to hook and how to shoot and what to grab and where to go. And guys, it's, it's a craft and an art. And it, you know, a lot of guys think a shoot is, yeah, we're going to slug it out now. A shoot is going down on the mat. And let's see who's the best at it. Let me see if I can hook you and try to tap you or grab you. And let's see the first man to get up. And remember, guys, if you can't get up, can't do a high spot. So how do you get up? You got to learn how to mat wrestle. With that being said, earlier you talked about being tough. And you stepped foot into extreme championship wrestling. And I see, I don't like, I know the term marks. 
Sometimes I like to say it, sometimes I don't. But I see marks and fans still on the internet to think that was a shoot, man. But you, can you tell us how serious it was in ECW, man? Like how intense it was? Well, you guys forget, I probably had the second best education wrestling for Carlos Colon in Puerto Rico, you know, because that was live, that was TV, and it was a real kayfabe atmosphere. So you had to learn how to work with the crowd. A lot of guys didn't speak English. You had to know how to work, and you had to work an angle and work. And if you did hardcore or, like, you did, you know, things outside the ring, because in Puerto Rico there's a lot of blood, and, you know, it, you had to learn on, on the go. The best training you can ever have. So when I got to ECW, I had been through, you know, I've been through the WWF. I was at... Uh, uh, WCW with Jack Veneno. I was with Jerry Lola in Memphis. I was with uh, Carlos Colon in Puerto Rico. I was at All Japan Pro Wrestling, you know, and that's not including Kendo Nagasaki's group with NOW. Um, and then when I come to ECW, the guys knew I was groomed, I could wrestle, I could do it all. But I had one of those attitudes where, you know, I'm good, I'm better than everybody. And, you know, you have to eat some humble pie if you want to come in. So that's what I had to do. And my attitude probably was, you know, was off because I was too good for my own good and I could back it up. And nobody wants to play with you if you could back it up. You know what I mean? I do. Now, down there in ECW, man, you had one of the most uh, intense feuds with yeah. the gangsters, man. How was it working with them boys, man? Because I, I'm going to be honest, a lot of guys – still to this day are scared to even work with New Jack. How was it out there working with them, man? Well, we put together the Baldies, the, the guys, you know, like um, they say how intense it was. We trained before. We, we, we uh, worked out before. It was the same rituals, the same good culture that they set up. And I followed it to a T because I love that culture. You know, you get to the, you go to get up in the morning, you go to the gym, come back to the hotel, go to the arena. You train in the ring, go do your match, grab something to eat, you're on to the next town. I was already doing this for about eight years. So the ritual and the culture was already instilled in me. But, you know, the ECW locker room was a close-knit family. Everybody was, you know, this is the way it is. This is the way we do things. They had, a, you know, a, a great insight on how they wanted their promotion run. So when people, what happened was I was having a great singles run as you know, Skull on Crush, and then I turned into Vito the Skull of Grasso. And then they talked to me and they said, you know, I said, Paul, I said, I'd like to, you know, do something more. I would, you know, and they said, Vito, we know you can do more. We just don't have a spot as a singles. But how about if we put you with a group and call you the Baldies? So I said, okay. So the guys, you know, trusted me, and I was the leader, and I came up with the entrance and, like, the way we dressed and how we fought. And when it came time to do the stuff with New Jack, Falls, and Axel, you know, they said, yeah, Vito, you don't have to bleed. You don't have to do anything. I said, no, guys. I said, if one bleeds, we all bleed. You know what I mean? Because I wasn't keen on the, you know, on the gigging and doing all that stuff. Because I did it in Puerto Rico, but I was, you know, I'm a pretty boy. So I didn't want to, you know, scratch myself up. But then what I had to do in an ECW, I wound up getting some of the best juice you've ever seen in your life because I learned in Puerto Rico how to do it correctly. So... I mean, working with those guys was a pleasure. We all treated each other like brothers. There was never a time where there was any animosity. We all worked hard because we wanted it to be the best feud. That, you know, everybody shined in that, in that thing. You know what I'm saying? Everybody. 
So, I mean, it was a great, it was a great intense rivalry. If I would have stayed with the Baldies, we could have been like, we could have been probably not the next four horsemen, but somewhere just maybe a step below those guys because we were a good foursome. Now, I got to ask you this too, man. Okay. You work, you talk about ECW, working with Mr. Heyman. We've heard all the stories about Heyman, good and bad. See, you, you're cracking a smile already. How did you, personal, not what anybody else says, personally, how did you feel working with Paul Heyman and for Paul Heyman? Guys, you know, everybody has their stories. And I know there's a lot of stories out there today, like in the wrestling world with uh, AJ Styles, you know, Gallows and, you know, Anderson and stuff. And I know people maybe have gotten, you know, rubbed the wrong way by Paul, but Working for him, he was a great motivator, okay? And when you deserve the chance, he gave you a chance to shine, you know, and he gave me opportunity. You know, he never owed me any money. He never played any of those games with me, you know. But, I mean, I have nothing bad to say about the man because I always did business, and anything he asked me to do, I did. And, you know, when it came time for me to, you know, put up, I put up, you know, and I said, I had no, no uh, ifs, ands, or buts. I mean, everybody watches the great uh, Skullbound Crush, you know, Sid match, you know, where I got my tail kicked. But three guys denied the right for Paul. They said, Paul went up to three guys. I was off that night, and he asked three guys if they wanted to wrestle Sid, and they said no. I were all talking to Ope Herman and a couple other guys. And he said, Vito, he says, I need you to, uh, I need a favor. I said, what's up? He said, I need you to wrestle. I need you to wrestle Sid. I said, okay. He says, you know what I want, right? I said, okay. That was it. They didn't talk about nothing. or just like, you know, I said, okay. So I went out and my job from our conversation was I had to put him over, put him over strong because they were bringing him in to fight Taz. So it was, you know, uh, it was a demolition. I went over the top rope, head first through the table. Yeah, I took two power bombs in there. But the, the surprise of the night was nobody asked me to stretch her out. I laid there and I stretched it out on my own. So Paul came down and everybody came running to the, uh, the dressing room. They said, oh, my God, are you okay? And Paul was like dead serious. He said, Vito, I'm sorry, are you okay? I said, yeah. I said, is that okay? Is that what you wanted? He says, you're not hurt. I said, no. He says, you got a full-time job. You're flying next week. And I earned a job just for doing that because I knew what he wanted from the experience I had going through the other promotions. Man, you up here inspiring right now. I'm about to start crying. I want to have it up. I love that, man. That's what's up. They always told me, they said, Vito, he said, if you would have fought back, that would have been one of the best fights we ever would have seen. Well, everybody knows I'm tough and I could fight. So, like, yeah. if I was going to fight, fight Sid, it would have been a hell of a shoot because I wasn't going to back down. And you see me take all the stuff, and I was like, okay, I'm good with this. You know, I could deal with it. And uh, they always used to they we always they always used to kid. They said, man, Vito, he said we'd like we'd like, we'd like to see you against Stone Cold. That's when Stone Cold was just starting, right? They said we'd like to see that shoot. I said, I said I'm game. If you're game, I don't care. You know what I mean? Because I I could back anything up. I was tough. I could I could wrestle. I could shoot. I could do whatever you wanted because I was groomed well you know what i mean i had the experience and not because i wanted to be a tough guy but because i learned the game from the bottom up 
Wrestling 101. Nice, nice. Now, I, I do want to ask this question before we go into your WCW career. Um, and I'm, I'm asking this by me being a brother myself, stereotypes. Now, you did the full, you did the Baldies thing, the FBI thing. You know, a lot of times in wrestling, they give us ethnic characters. Were you offended when you, or did you bring it to the table? Or does it bother you? Or do you say, let's make money? When I did the German gimmick, like I'm new in the business. So, you know, you say, okay, well, I'm going to be German. I'll be German. I was probably the best shoot German you've ever seen. And Skull von Crush still today is still remembered. And I still get mad. I love Skull von Crush. And probably the best match in ECW was when I did the, the bus trip. And I wrestled Rob Van Dam in the arena. And we heard for the first time the crowd split between SVK and RVD. And if you watch that match, again, me and Rob in the arena, that's probably one of the best matches you'll ever see for TV where two guys went at it before he took it on me. But everybody thought I was going to win that night because, you know, I came and I could wrestle on that level. And people knew it. So when they gave me a chance to wrestle on that level, you know, I, I did my job. Nice, nice. Well, your journey goes on to WCW. Yes. First of all, how did that happen, getting to WCW? And did you actually enjoy the environment? Because if I'm not mistaken, we're still Monday Night Wars right now. So how did you enjoy that environment after you got there? Well, I tell you guys, you know, I got the phone call from Vince Russo. He says, you know, I got a job for you. You know, me and him were friends for a long time. And he says, I got a job for you. And uh, he said, I want to bring you to WCW. And I, says, I said, okay. So J.J. Dillon called me and negotiated a contract. And then um, I went to Paul. And I said, Paul, I says, uh, you know, I got an offer from WCW. He says, really? So I said, but I don't want to leave. I says, I want to stay here. And he says, Vito, I can't pay you that kind of money. He says, you've been working your whole career to get to this. He says, you go to WCW. And I said, okay, that's why I did the Loser League Town match. And when I got to WCW, you know, here I am. You know, the first guy I meet in the building is Sting. You know, and I introduced myself. And then I met Johnny the Bull. And uh, we made up the name. He said, Vito, we need a name for the team. I said, how about the Mamelukes? You know, and they said, okay, well, let's do that. And... Uh, they wrote vignettes for us and they put us on TV and Johnny was green out of the power plant. I said, uh, they trusted me to take care of him and Tony at the time. And I said, okay, I can do it. So when we did our stuff and everybody listened and that I always protected them and made sure they didn't look a fool because we were doing things as a team. Me and Johnny wound up being a great tag team and we had some great tag team matches and uh, Tony was a good manager until he got hurt with a concussion. And then it's when we got disco but if you talk about the atmosphere and what I was doing in WCW, it was a great time. I mean, who wouldn't want to be there with Hogan and Steiner and Sting and Ric Flair and all the, the macho men, all the greats, and you're right there and you're fighting your way up the card trying to get that prominent time and that, you know, and that, uh, and that time slot to get on there and be a champion. So it wasn't until uh, Vince Russo had left and Kevin Sullivan came up to me, said, Vito, he says, it's, it's time. I said, what's up, Kevin? I said, it's time for what? And I was just like, I didn't know what he was talking about. He said, we're going to put the straps on you and Johnny. I said, really? I was shocked. And I says, okay. And uh, we won the titles, 
you know, against David Flair and Crowbar. And I think it was about four weeks later when I think it hit me. Now you're talking about I was there a few months. When it finally hit me, I can remember like it was yesterday, and I'm walking up and I'm looking at the WC. I said, shit, I'm in WCW. True <laughs> 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 story. And I lie, I'm not lying. It's a true story. Right. And question about that, because you worked in all three locker rooms, right? Like, right. you know, how do they compare? Like, what was, you know, great about one, sucked about another one, you know, from your standpoint, working working across the board? Well, I mean, the the ECW dressing room was a family, you know, if one fights, we all fight, we all stuck together. You know, we were kind of like the rebel company. So, I mean, we were up and coming and we had, we were competing you know, competing with WWE and, you know, WCW. When you get to someplace like WCW, you know, you have Nash, Hogan, Sid, Steiner. I mean, it's star-studded. And you got to fight your way to get to that level, to get TV time, just to get TV time. And then if you want to be a champion, you got to fight even harder. So, I mean, they gave me, they gave me the privilege of being tag team champion. And then the second time, you know, I was hardcore champion. And then, you know, my big, the biggest night I had in WCW was the night I beat Terry Funk for the hardcore title on Nitro during the Nitro Wars. And doing hardcore, you know, I was already groomed from Puerto Rico, ECW. So when I went there, it was an art form that was learned. And I don't think you could teach it. You just got to know how to do it because you have to learn how to work. And it's not about talking or doing anything. And me and Terry Funk, you know, we didn't talk. I mean, okay, Vito. He says, uh, what do you want to do? I says, I says, I'm with you. I said, we'll just go out there and we'll do it. So we knew to finish in a match. And that was about it. And then the rest of it was, you know, us going back and forth until I walked up the stairs. And I knew, I said to myself, I got to turn the tide now. That's when I grabbed the garbage can and hit him. And then we went into our spots and we walked our way to the arena. And, um, uh, you know, I made history that night. And when you beat a legend like Terry Funk and he hands you the belt, that's probably the biggest night you'll ever have in your life because the guy says you've arrived. Congratulations. And that night in, um, in the bar, me and Gene Oakland raised his glass. For all the boys were there that night, from Hogan to Flair to everybody. He said, I'd like to congratulate Vito. He's arrived tonight. Congratulations. We wish you a lot of success. And having the whole locker room salute you with a beer or a drink. That's pretty cool. So I got to ask you, at that moment, how did you fit? Matter of fact, no. I think this is a perfect time for Daryl to <laughs> ask your question, man. Go ahead, Daryl. We, we always get this one in here, right? And, I, and again, you worked all over the world, right? Right. And uh, what was, in a, and again, you may not have showed it, you may not have sold it, but what was your kind of your biggest mark-off moment? Because you were in WWF a couple times, WCW. When are you in a locker room and you're sitting next to a guy and you go, oh, my God, I can't believe I've made You really want to know the greatest story I have? Yeah. It's probably playing cards with um, Goldberg and Sting and Scott Steiner, right? So we're playing, we're playing Beal, and uh, I'm pissing them off. Like, there's nobody's tomorrow because I was a good Beal player, right? And I would antagonize them. You've never seen guys get so mad. Sting laughed the most. Steiner got the mad most, and Goldberg got pissed off the most. So I just enjoyed just doing it. And I used to talk some Staten smack as I'm beating them. And I, you know, you didn't have to do that. Now you set me. I said, there's nothing naming the game. So shut up. 
You know what I mean? I would say shit like that. And like, here I am sitting with these monsters and everybody from Kevin Nash and everybody would laugh because I was beating them. But you talk about playing cards with guys and actually sitting down and being boys. I mean, that was pretty awesome. I mean, the markout thing, um, I guess, I guess just being, being from where I started to all the guys who I always say thank you for help grooming me, like for not being that guy, but just being one of the boys. And that's the hardest thing to do is just be one of the boys like you belong, you know? And um, I could tell you a, a story about Bret Hart. The first time I wrestled Bret Hart, he had just won the Intercontinental title. I was his first TV match. And uh, he didn't know me. And I'm wrestling him. And he was pretty hard with me, pretty stiff with me. And I'm like, and I was like, oh, I was okay with it. And I can remember I was on my knees at one point. And I said, Johnny always told me to shoot the leg and do this and do that. And all these things are running through my mind. But there I am on TV with Bret Hart, the champ. And I just, I let it go. So the next day we did TV, he says, hey, can I talk to you for a second? I said, I said yeah. I said, what's up? He says, uh, I want to apologize to you. I, said, I says, for what? He says, uh, I was a little rough with you. He says, I apologize. I asked to work with you tonight. I says, I says, I'm fine with it. I said, I'm just trying to be, you know, one of you guys. He says, you are one of us. He says, that's why I asked to work with you. And from that day on, I became friends with Bret Hart. I wrestled him four times while he had the title. And uh, you couldn't ask for a better, a better compliment and a better probably mark out moment if you really want one. When one of the guys like that at that level comes up to you and you're green and says, hey, I apologize for being rough with you. And that doesn't happen too often, you know what I mean? So if you want a mark out moment, just and doing that and then going to WCW and Bret Hart coming up to me afterwards and after my tag team match with uh, Disco and Lash LaRue, he called me over, Vito, he says, come here. He says, you really did good tonight. I says, I enjoyed your match. I says, he says, you come a long way. That meant the world to me right there. All I ever wanted was respect from the guys. You know what I mean? It wasn't about money. It wasn't about prestige. It wasn't about Hall of Fame. It was about respect for me. Because I wanted to be the best wrestler I could be. And that's the truth. Man, and it, it, it's funny you saying this, man, because you, you talked earlier about being tough, and you talked about Johnny Rod's um, training you and pretty much preparing you for your wrestling world. A shout-out to him, man. We've heard many stories about how great he is. But your level of respect is amazing. Did you always carry that throughout your entire career? Because, you, as you know, some guys, they uh, go Hollywood. They become so big, they don't have it anymore. But it just seems like no matter who you met, you stayed so respectful, man. Hey, if it wasn't for those guys teaching me, he says, I would have never made anything. And if I didn't listen or take the training I had seriously, you know, I, I wouldn't have made it in the wrestling business. And, you know, it's sad that a lot of guys today don't follow the same rules that I was brought up with and that the same culture is not followed. And I think that's what's missing in wrestling today because today you're paid to train and you start off at the developmental level and you don't have to work to, you don't have to work to get your credentials. You're already given your credentials at the front door and then you just got to progress from the, but the negative of the developmental, the performance center is you don't get that on the road training and you don't get that home cooking. What I mean is you don't go back to school the next day and talk about what you did. You learn as you go and you learn how to work. And I think that is the biggest thing missing in wrestling today. Uh, 
I, I definitely have to back that up and agree, man. Um, again, like I said, I, I know how it is. Just driving with two other wrestlers all over the country and working different crowds and trying to get different people to react. Unfortunately, they don't have that. And I do think that stifles a lot of the guys' growth. But with that being said, you slide on into WWE again. I gotta ask. Well, you know, we'll we'll get there in a second. Wait a minute, you forgot you forgot you forgot two places, okay? Everybody forgets that I wrestled the very first match for XWF. This is true. This is true. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about TNA. Let's talk about that. Go go okay. right ahead. So XWF was put together to be a rival to Vince McMahon. They had Hogan, they had Perfect, they had Piper, they had Lola, they had the Nasty Boys, they had myself, they had Buff Bagwell. They had a star-studded, Greg Dahammer Valentine, Jimmy Hart, they had a star-studded lineup. Our first three shows, we drew 15,000, 8,000, and 5,000 off infomercial. We were going, and it was going big, and Vince got nervous. Who did he sign? Jerry Lawler. Then he signed Hogan. Then he signed Roddy Piper. That was the end of that. And, and it's crazy because the DVDs were still being sold at FYE, still being sold at Suncoast. I'm talking about two, three years ago. Like these wasn't, you know what I'm saying? Right. Because, like I said, it, it was big. It was a big thing, man. Do you think Vince will always try to do that? Still stop something that's growing? I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to say it now. God forbid AEW goes under, Vince will buy that library. He will pay whatever because you've got Jericho on it, you've got Cody Rhodes, you've got Dustin Rhodes, right? And you talk about when you buy libraries, you put it on their network, you make money off it, right? Who doesn't want to own the libraries? Like they have bought, I think Jerry Lawler still has the USWA library. That's a sacred library to have. I think they just... And I think it was only last year that they bought Carlos Colon's library, if I'm not mistaken, okay? So when you buy libraries, the only library that he has not bought up to date is Mario Sobaldi's uh, WCCW, so the Sobaldi library. And that was pretty famous back then because they had everybody, everybody come through there, right? So when you talk about all the libraries you could put and you put them on the network for $9.99, and people want to go back. What do we watch today, guys? We watch the old stuff because the old stuff is what we like. We don't like the new stuff that's shoveling us because everybody looks, and this is not an insult to no wrestlers that are wrestling today, but the guys on TV today, they're all pretty cut up, 190, 200 pound guys. And that's all well and good. And it's a different style of wrestling, but it's not the wrestlers that you looked at where it's like, Oh my God, there's Rick Rude. Oh my God, there's Aku. And you knew who people were when they walked in an airport because of their size, the way they looked, the way they carried themselves. I mean, it, it, it's like, you know, it's night and day. And imagine all these guys who are on TV today trying to break in in the 90s or 2000. Yeah, yeah. Made, AJ Styles didn't even make it in WCW. Right, and he and he was, and he was good, but he didn't make it. You know, 
and, and that's a huge point because we uh, same thing when I watch the network I'm not watching anything probably past 2005 I mean I'm, I'm watching all the old stuff because I because right. the characters right you know right. The, right now you got guys you got workers but you don't have any care what's their motivation what's what is the character and it just doesn't exist and so it's hard to get behind somebody where you don't have that larger than life character right exactly and you know what and, and like they try today and you can't knock them for not trying but you know, what they do in NXT, right? And they bring these guys in and they have their over in NXT. When they get to their main roster, they change their whole philosophy of wrestling and change their gimmick. So you have to learn NXT. Then when you go up to Raw, you have to learn Raw. When you go to SmackDown, you have to learn SmackDown. So you have to learn a new territory. These guys are inexperienced, so they can't adapt as well because they're still trying to figure it out. And Johnny Rods told me one time, he says, you're going to be in the business 10 years and you're still not going to figure out. And he was right because in 10 years, you know, I was on top of the run and I'm still trying to figure out how to keep my spot, how to keep going. What's the politics? What's the backstage thing? And these are things that they don't teach you in wrestling school. These are things that you learn on the way, how to negotiate a contract, always make sure you get your money, always save your money. You know, um, you know, I, I, you talk about, you know, negotiating a six figure contract, you know, does anybody teach you how to do that? Do you know how much literature there is to read, what you got to go through, how to get a lawyer, what to do with? There's a lot of stuff, and you learn this in the wrestling business, and you learn what's what, and you, you just, you know, you got to adapt on the fly. And, and, you, and you, we talked about character, right? We talk, you talked about the XWF. So, so now, you know, you're wrapping up, you wrapped up WCW, or WCW's out of bit. Tell us how we, we get from WCW to the WWF, and then, and then let's talk about that character, right? Because now you... Right. You know, what, what are WWF's plans for you, you know, coming back in? Well, guys, I mean, going to the XWF and then going to TNA, I was still big veto, you know, Italian tough guy. And then when I got to, um, I went back to Japan for uh, World Japan. I went back to Germany, you know, and I was still wrestling. Then when I, when I finally got back to the WWE, I had gone full circle. So I went from German to being... Uh, to being to Vito the Skull Grasso, to Big Vito, to coming in as an Italian mob guy. And there I was breaking in with Nunzio, winning the Cruiserweight title. So that put me in a good spot. I never was a manager before. So just like Kevin Nash was a manager, Mr. Perfect was a manager, here I am being a manager. What does the manager do? Now you see on the indies, managers have 50 high spots. That's not what you do. You stand there, you got one one job you have one move you do one thing because the focus is on the match but when you make your move you want the people to go oh i knew he was gonna do yeah and as soon as you make a movement you everybody remember they just stand with my arms folded never make a move until it was my turn and when i did it everybody knew oh fuck Vito, you did it again right but that was the job as a manager wasn't to outshine the wrestlers and then when i used to cheer i mean nunzio Nunzio hadn't been a champion on the big time, right? And we had a conversation last night. I said, Nunz, I says, I have to tell you this. He goes, what? And we were tight. We were, good. we were friends. I said, Nunz, I says, you're still wrestling as a contender. He goes, what do you mean? I said, you're not wrestling as a champion. You're still wrestling like you're fighting for the title, but you're the champ. You have to, one, at one point of the match, you have to lay everybody down to show the people that you are the champ and you're the boss and you're the man. So when we changed our philosophy, he took off with the Cruiserweight title. 
and he made some good strides and he became a better wrestler because of that. And my job as a manager and what guys should learn today is the manager is the eyes outside the ring. Whatever's happening, you have to tell the wrestler in the ring. You have to be the eyes outside and you have to help your guy get over. And that's your job. A lot of guys think you have to do 50 high spots and that's not what it's about. I'm glad you touched on that right quick. Um, I was watching a, a shoot interview with Al Snow and he was saying, we've got these guys working now with the no audience, no fans thing. He can tell they truly are just working to pop each other, the workers. So they go in the back, high five each other. We had a great match because they done wrote a whole script instead of saying the finish, the spots, let's go. And they're not working for the TV audience. Do you think that happens quite often now? Guys are so worried about just working with each other to have a great match and not entertaining people? I think it's because guys don't know how to work in that capacity because they weren't taught that way. I mean, if you take, if we went to NXT tomorrow, okay, and I'm not picking on the WWE, I'm just using it as, as an example, okay, because they are the one, they are the developmental school. So let's say, oh, let's bring it. If you were to take half the locker room and split it up and say, okay, guys, we're going to have matches today. Okay, Vito, what do you want us to do? Do we get, no, I want baby faces on that side. I want heels on the other side. All right. We have five minutes. All right. You and you. Let's go. Five minutes. The finish of the match is a sunset flip. Go. You're going to see how inexperienced guys are. They don't know how to do five minutes, let alone get into a finish where it's a sunset flip. That's where you learn how to work. But because everything is so scripted and you have to go move for move for move, what happens when that move breaks down? Do you have the ability to cut it right there, take charge? go into something else and then continue? Or are you going to stop the match and say, hey, this ain't working. We got to change it on the fly because the plans are not popping. So, I mean, there's a lot that goes into it because they're trying to pop each other. I mean, hey, that's fine. But when you're working, it looks too mechanical and it doesn't look natural. You want to be natural out there. You want to show that the one thing Vito LaGrasso had in ECW, and I say it all the time, I had swag because I knew I could kick the shit out of everybody in that building in 2000, 5000, and I was gonna kick the shit out of my opponent and you seen it in my face. And I laughed at everybody and I had that smug look, but I knew I could back it up. And I did that my whole career, I can back it up. And guys don't have that swag. They have this persona, but they don't have swag. And you can't teach that. That comes with time in the ring and learning your craft. And, and it's a sorry thing to say. But if we had more of the old school territories, there'd be a lot better wrestling. I'm glad you touched on that swag thing. Because one thing we've heard for a million years, the best workers, I mean, The Rock says it, everybody says it, is your personality turned up. Agree, disagree. Agree. agree. If I, you know what? How can I learn how to be Big Vito if I didn't grow up in Staten Island? I didn't know the insides and outsides of Italian living or the family lifestyle. You know, and I'm being honest with you guys. Yeah, you know, I work for families. I've been in that lifestyle. So when you portrayed on TV in my vignettes, when I did the Mamaloos, when I did TNA, when I did anything, that's how mob guys acted. And that's what you got. And when you watch the movies and you compare me to Italian mob guys, I can go on the screen tomorrow and be the godfather because I know what I'm doing. 
because I lived it. It's me. You know what I mean? So when you get to talking that, how do you be a German? I have to change modes. You know what I mean? I have to learn all the German stuff, marching, learning how to have that, have that in my head. I'm German. I'm not Vito. And that's, that's something you teach. Now we'll get to the WWE and you say, okay, now you transform into a dress, right? So now how do you do that? This comes from wrestling one-on-one and all the years I wrestled guys, this is because you know how to work. Did I know how to put on a dress? Did I know how to work in a dress? Did I, everything I did on TV was on the fly, what I felt. So used to tell guys, pay attention to the dress. Let me do my thing. Let me intimidate you with the dress. Back up. And when, you know, these guys, I told these guys, everybody, whoever I wrestled is the truth. Guys, you got to stick it to me. And you got to mean business because you don't want guys in a dress to beat the shit out of you. When it's your time, you stick it to me because I'm babyface. I got to be able to take a beating. And it's the truth. Thanks a lot, Vito. I had a whole segue going to the dress thing. No, I'm messing with you, man. No, but you, go when, ahead. They, when they presented it to you, how did you feel? It gave me an opportunity, guys. And when you get an opportunity, you don't know what it is. You take it. Because if, they, if you say no to that opportunity, then what happens if you never get an op- another opportunity and you get your release tomorrow? Yeah, we had something for you, but you didn't want it. So uh, take it easy. So I did it. I did it. With, I, and... I was probably the happiest I was in wrestling because I got to be me. I'm happy. I like to smile. I was hugging people. That was my personality. And I enjoyed it. It didn't matter what I was wearing. I was enjoying my time. I was the most recognizable pro athlete. I got to um, probably do every guy's dream and post for Playgirl magazine. That's when Playboy had all the divas, you know, and here I come and I'm doing my thing. You know, one day you're beauty and you're beautiful. And, you know, that was the thing. I did it very tastefully. I was covered, you know. But when you get to do something like that, every guy out there, yeah, I want to go and play girl. I want to show my things with all the chips. No, it's really, it's all the guys who look at you and they want your number. I can't tell you how many times guys bought me a drink and I'd say, hey, thank you very much. I said, I don't swing that way, but, you know, I appreciate the drink. But the, the crazy thing about it, guys, was, I had more women in that year than I ever had in my life. And it was crazy because everybody wanted to be with the man with the dress. So, I mean, it was the greatest thing. And uh, when it was time for me to close the dress, when I went in my closet, I had more women's clothes than I had guy clothes. It was sad. You know, hold hold on, Daryl, Daryl, one second. Excuse me, Mr. Grasso. That was back in the day. That's not today. That was back in the day. So don't be be mad at him. Even though my wife loved the dress and she still tells me to put one on every now and then. I mean, we still kick it. It's all right. She loves when I put it on. I don't care. But to me, it doesn't matter because I just, I don't care. You know what I mean? I'm not, I don't have those uh, insecurities about my manhood or my insecurities about myself. You know, I'll give you, I'll give you another thing, right? I've been getting manicure pedicures for years. You're talking almost 25 years of grooming, right? Yeah. I just started painting my toenails, right? So the first, last week my birth, on my birthday, I got baby blue. This week, this month, I got orange, right? So maybe I'll go back to the baby blue. But if you're, if you're cool with yourself, you know, and you can go out there, you know, you're fine. And guys, they say, 
oh man, how could you go get a manicure pedicure? I said, what? where do you want to be on a Saturday morning? Hanging out with women, right? And what are you doing? You're sitting in chairs with a bunch of women, right? And what are they doing? Talking about their man. I'll join in the conversation, right? And I used to tell my wife all the time because like she used to have all her spies at the one salon we used to work at. All her girlfriends used to go, right? So I used to sit there. I'd have the best time of my life in there. And I used to say, damn. And I used to actually say, can I have your number, Vito? I'm going to call your wife. I said, yeah, go ahead. It's all right. You know, but knowing that I, my wife would get a call. Yeah, Vito was in the salon again. He was a, a hit. I used to tell her, babe, I said, if I was single, I said, and while I was having those two for one breakfast specials, I'd be rolling down the street. I'd be getting sandwiches for us for 333, right? A little coffee, a little soiree. I mean, who's better than me? I had the game plan all locked down, man. Had it all you locked better. down. You better talk your ish, man. By the way, happy belated birthday. When was yours? Mine you. was July 15th. When was yours? June 18th. June 18th. Happy belated, man. What'd you, what did you do? What'd you do for your birthday? Well, um, I ran out to Vegas. I know I shouldn't have, but I ran out to Vegas for a week. All right. You went to Vegas, all right? You know what I you know what I did? I have all these all these dreams of mine and I have all these great things I want to accomplish in my life. So my thing is when we bought our new house, I wanted to have a white party. What a white party is, is what everybody dresses white, dresses in white. You invite your friends and you come and you drink wine and have sushi and all this. So my wife and our friend, Lily Fox, put together a white party for me where we actually had a sushi guy and everybody, all our friends dressed in white. And we all had, and they bought a new house. So the pool was in the cul-de-sac. So in their house, in the middle. So we had sushi poolside with wine. So I got to live another one of my dreams. So I had an awesome birthday. That's so, I mean, that's, that's the coolest thing. I'll, I know my wife's birthday is coming up and I'm going to have to do something great. You know, I'm hoping McDonald's has a sale or something so I can get her some fries and shit. You know what I mean? Got to keep the budget in check, fellas. You know what I mean? Daryl, ask a question, Daryl. Get, get a little stop. Get a question, man. No, 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 you know what I wanted to say, though? Because when you're talking about the, the whole dress thing, it's like, you know, being dedicated to the character. Whether you like the character or don't like the character, it's like, hey, it's a job. I'm going to do the best job I can. It's a great attribute. Because we, you, I take Adrian Adonis, right? He, exactly. He ran with that thing. And it was, I mean, it's memorable today. I can watch a great, he was a great worker and he had a great character and I can watch it today. And it's like, man, it's fantastic. And so it's, it's really, you know, being dedicated to your craft. You know, and that's the one thing that boys in the locker room respected me for because I knew I was old school. I respected the gimmick. I respected the business. Not one of them ever gave me a hard time. They respected me for doing that. And you know, the thing I said about being tough, Adrian Donis was a tough son of a bitch. You talk about tough guys in the business, go ahead and try to mess with him or try to do something with him. He was tough. And you know what? You put it on a dress, you got to have a set. You got to have a set. Of, you got to have a set. And you got to be ready because I said to myself, it's a one-on-one I handle myself. Five against one, I'm going to get my ass kicked, but I'm taking somebody with me. And I was prepared for it, you know? It was one night, we're all in a diner. It was Undertaker, Mr. Anderson, Shavo, Shane Helms, uh, myself, Sylvan, and I think a couple other guys. I had to go to the parking lot for something, right? I go in the parking lot, I'm in a dress, and there's these group of guys in a circle. So I had to go walk past them. All of a sudden, they start circling me. They start to circle, and I'm like, I says, oh, shit, I hope somebody's watching through the window, right? So 
I back up and I get my thing and I'm walking and I'm looking at the window and I do this wave thing and they all look and they see guys in there. So they kind of backed off. They said, Vivo, what happened out there? I said, I was almost getting my ass handed to me by all those guys because they said, we were watching what was happening. We were waiting for something to go on. I said, thanks for saving me. I saved my own ass. Now, with that being said, because we just had um, Duke Josie on the show, and he was right. talking about that type of thing happened a lot. Well, guys would want to test wrestlers, or maybe they just didn't like wrestlers, and they don't care who you are because you guys were in there having fun. Did, did, that happen? did you notice that a lot at a bar or something? That happened to me all the time. And, like, um, with the dress, you know, I walk in and people would snicker or they'd say something out loud, and I'd turn around, and I would go to them, and I would go up to the table, and I would say, how would you like a guy in a dress to kick the effing shit out of you all over this place and then have you pay my bill at the end? Legit shoot. No, no bullshit. And, you know, even today, you know, after wrestling, there are still guys out there who still do the same crap to me, and I just, I'm so mellow. I just, like, like I brush it up. I don't even, I, I don't even look. My wife tells me, you know, and like, you know, and they said, you see that? I said, yeah, I see that. I said, I'm, I'm cool with it. It doesn't matter because I'm laid back. But if you would have got Vito 2000 that I was so intense and, I mean, it was, it was something. I mean, my wife seen me get into a fight one time where these guys were talking crap about me. And it escalated to where the guy actually came to where I was sitting to watch a pay-per-view. So I called the guy outside, right? So I said, all right, you want to talk about me? I said, I'm here. So what are you going to do about it? So him and his two buddies walked behind him. I headbutted him in the head, and I was ready to go, and I was going to fight three guys. And my wife was standing there like this. The girls who were the waitresses, yeah, go ahead. You make him. You're going to fight us too. But I headbutted this son of a bitch right in the head. I was ready to fight all three of them. I, when I was that wired up and intense, you did not want to mess with me. This was a worker or a, or a mark? This was, I, I guess you can call him a mark. He was in the business, but he was an, it was an asshole. So he was a mark. But you talk about intensity and with fight. Guys forget that I came from Staten Island. And, you know, in Staten Island, I had to make my bones. So where I worked and how I worked and what I did, that attributed to being Vito LaGrasso. And you know what? Nobody met, used to mess with me on Staten Island because of who I was and uh, what I did and how I presented myself. And then it just transpired to wrestling. And I never lost that. And then with being on edge all the time and having to worry and training and being on fire 24 hours a day, seven days a week, it was like, it was tough. It was just a, a tough time. You know, everybody thinks when you make it to the top, your worries are over. Your worries are just starting. For sure, for sure. Well, Vito, we had a great show and we ain't gonna keep you all night because I know you got to get on out of here and relax, man. So right now, we got a segment, though. Before we okay. close out, okay. it's called Ring the Bell. Ring it's the where bell. we give you 60 seconds to talk about whatever. You can promote what you got going on. You can inspire people. You can just say the sky is blue. Whatever you want to do. So right. Vito, big Vito, 60 seconds. I need you to ring the bell. All right. First, I want to say thank you to my wife for doing the Big Vito brand. She's keeping it afloat. She's doing a great job. You know, if it wasn't for her, we wouldn't have the Big Vito brand. You know, thank you to Noel. She's doing a great job. To all the guys out there who helped train me 
and do things for me like I always do. I always say thank you because without your teaching and knowledge, I would never have become Big Vito. To all the fans out there, I want to say thank you for still supporting me and being behind me 150%. And I'm sorry that a lot of you guys asked me to wrestle. Maybe, maybe I'll get back in the ring. I don't know. But life on a golf course and being in Florida, taking the sun, looking good, looking buff, you know, getting a lot of, well, it's just a lot of stuff anyway. Anyway, but, you know, guys, I just want to say thank you. And thank you to these guys here on this podcast for having me on their show, keeping me relevant, keeping my name out there. And guys, you did a great job, and thank you for having me on the show. For sure, for sure. And don't leave quite right quick. When we close the show, I want to talk to you about one second after the show. But All right. with that being said, devastating. We had another dope show, man. Oh, man, another great guest, man. He, and I, Like I said, I appreciate how, how mellow he is and how respectful he is about the business. He really gets it. It's just it's been a great show. Plus, I got somebody to call if I ever get in a bind. You know, I might need a, you know, somebody to help. Help me a little bit. I, I know well, call up. Well, baby, you know, if you got, if you need, you know, help with your street cred, brother, you know, you're, you're talking to the right man here, you know. I am from the hood. I still got some hood connections. So if you got a little piece of action on the, you know, on the street, we could work something out. You better talk your ish, man. Ah, uh, uh, yeah. Y'all know what to do. Anchor, for the listeners to the podcast, you check us out on Anchor, the Whip Show podcast, Spotify, iTunes, everywhere you listen to your podcast. YouTube, just put in the Whip Show Podcast. IG, Instagram, follow us at the Whip Show Podcast. Facebook, same thing. If you got a guest that you want on the show, all you got to do is email us, the Whip Show Podcast at gmail.com. But with that being said, I am Deshaun Whip Dog Whipple. Devastating Daryl Pace. And we have Big Vito. You know what it is. Check us out next Friday. Come check us out, the rest of the heroes and inside this podcast at the Whip Show. Take care, y'all.